This episode of the Coaches Club is brought to you by Skaters Network. If you're just breaking into the game or you're a seasoned vet looking for gear that will help optimize your performance, then Skaters Network is your one-stop shop. With locations all across Australia and the best online shop in the country, you don't need to go anywhere else for the best advice and the best fit. No retailer does more for hockey in Australia than the guys at Skaters Network, so support the team that supports our game and shop at skatersnetwork.com. Today's guest is Dean Holden. Dean has spent a lifetime in the game and coached a range of teams in a range of roles. His resume includes stops in the WHL, Canadian college and university programs on both the men's and women's side, the Canadian national team, and more recently, the Korean and Romanian national programs. In recent years, Dean has devoted himself to further studying the art of coaching. And with a master's degree and currently working on a PhD, Dean is a wealth of knowledge and experience. Whether you're a brand new coach or an experienced one, you can be certain that you will learn something from Dean. So please welcome Dean Holden. Let's start, I guess, um, and, and something I like to ask all coaches is is thinking way back because there's many different ways coaches end up in coaching. But I know for myself, at least, a lot of it starts when you're playing. Um, you either lo- really look up to a coach or get really pissed off by a coach and think, I can do a better job or I want to be like this guy. But when did you first have the feeling that you'd like to become a coach? How, how early on was it? Well, you know, when this was, uh, I, I just said to you here as we started, like, I'm really appreciative of these questions, this opportunity, because, um, you know, these questions really inspired a lot of good critical thought on my behalf. Um, you know, so my compliments to you on, on the questions. Um, and I think that it wasn't any one moment. It was a, it was a process, and it was a process born out of, um, my my background um, as a kid growing up and how my parents raised me and what they exposed me to and um, you know and then just as as time goes on it's it's like an evolution so there there's a couple of moments so i i think to fully understand the answer i have to go back in time provide some context so you know i i love sport as a kid and i played multiple sports um my dad I have very early memories of my dad playing um, like uh, senior level hockey uh, rugby and baseball and I remember as a kid going to the to the rink to the ball diamond or the rugby pitch and at the time I'm going to rugby I don't even know what rugby is like as a Canadian kid like you know two three four five years old like I I'd never I'd never even seen it like well we didn't have a tv then either but you know, I, I had no idea what this game was. It was kind of crazy. And my mom played uh, for University of Calgary Dinos on the basketball team and the volleyball team. So I never got to see her play because after that she went into teaching, but they both had athletic backgrounds. And I remember going into like the locker room at the rink and all these guys, you know, you know, to a little kid, they're big, hairy, sweaty, cursing beer bottles around you know it was kind of funny in one sense but you just you're kind of like wide-eyed you're just like oh and you, you know you look up with your uh look up to your parents i think when you're that age like maybe up until 10 or 12 with 
you know, stars in your eyes and they're your idol and they can do no wrong, even if they give you crap or whatever, you, you know, you just love them unconditionally. But those are really impactful um, moments on me when I look back and really good memories. And um, I think that like they, because of that, they always encourage me to, to play sport. So I did gymnastics year round, like in, in tumble, it was called tumbling for, you know, as a guy back then it was, um, you know, girls did gymnastics and boys did tumbling. Um, and so I did tumbling for a few years, like year round, uh, you know, get physical literacy skills. And then I, you know, like any kid, I played seasonal sports. So here, um, because we have, you know, four seasons, five, if you count construction and stampede, um, you know, you play hockey when it gets cold enough out to have ice because we played outdoors. So we had in winter, we'd play hockey. And then in the spring, um, we'd play baseball, um, a little bit of soccer. Um, and then in summer, definitely soccer. And then I, my dad got me into dirt biking. So we dirt bike. Um, we'd go snowmobiling in the winter. Um, I, my mom comes from equestrian background and she trained um, show jumpers and dressage horses for the Olympics. So I had a horse growing up on the farm and I did, I did some show jumping myself as a kid until I discovered motorbikes were faster. And, um, you know, and I, I played volleyball in the fall and I did track and field in the spring. So always busy with sport. So from that context, I think in being exposed early and often to sport put me in that environment. Um, you know, after I saw my, my, my dad play and I knew my mom played, um, I remember, and these were great memories today. Um, you've been to Calgary. I mean, you lived here for years, so you know the Stampede Corral. And uh, they're actually tearing it down right now. And they tried to save as many of the pitchers in the, um, you know, around the concourse that they could, but some of them were like painted on so they couldn't. So they took digital photos to try and reproduce them in a museum later. But my earliest memories of going to a hockey game were in the 1970s when um, the Calgary Centennials were playing here in the old Western Canadian Hockey League, which was a precursor of the Western Hockey League. And um, as a kid, you just get standing room tickets. Your parents would go watch or your dad would go watch with his buddies and they'd drink beers in good seats. And then we'd be up in the standing room up at the top, just running around at the top and we'd, you know, bring our old hockey sticks. We'd play knee hockey or, you know, road hockey up there. And we'd, we'd um, scrounge for programs because we would be, we wouldn't have any money, just kind of scrounge a program to see the, you know, who the players were. And, and I remember distinctly my dad making a big deal out of it when Gordie Howe came with Hartford and, and watching him play with his sons. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. Like Gordie Howe, like no clue who he was. Right. But I got to see him play and, and, um, it was very uh, a very special environment at the Calgary uh, uh, Corral. And then, you know, watching the Centennials, watching Calgary Cowboys later on, the WHA, you know, kind of the competitor of the NHL. And then um, in 1980, the Flames moved to Calgary. And I remember, you know, it was all over the news and it was a big deal. And dad was able to get season tickets and we had seats right down uh, seat one and seat two, uh, like one in front of the other, right at the glass on the aisle. So we could stretch out, you know, the Krell had crappy seats. They're hard wooden benches, 
they put in some padded ones later in the, the club seat level, but we had the, the kind of the crappy ones. Um, but we were right at the face-off dot in the visiting team's end for the first and third period. And so this was 1980, so I was junior high, and my dad would take me to all the games. And, you know, the memories of just being with him and talking to him to and from the rink during intermission, watching the game, seeing the size of those players up front and the sweat and the, you know, the snow spraying and the, you know, you could hear them talking and swearing at each other and the fights and just everything. It was just right there. So I think all these things made a, a pretty big impression on me. And, and I'd never thought about being a, a, a pro player or a coach, but I was just around sport all the time. And so I think it was pretty cool. And I remember when I, when I went into high school, the first time I thought about becoming a coach was, you know, I want to make sure I make the best teams that I can. And I thought maybe if I take some coaching courses, I can get insights into what coaches think about and how they select players and what, what do I need to work on? Maybe, you know, it's self-serving. It was like, how do I become uh, a more valued player in their eyes? So I signed up at Mount Royal College at the time, and I took my level one, two, and three in 1982. I think I was, you know, I was about 15 years old, and I snuck in because they were supposed to only let you in if you're 16, but for whatever reason, you know, they let me in. And I took these classes, and it was Friday night, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, and I remember walking down these hallways going, Jesus, like, I, I don't know where I am, just, you know, I couldn't figure it out and I finally found the classes and I, you know, for three weekends in a row I attended, but I remember walking into the class and just being so anxious and I walk in and I see a room full of adults. And of course the only seats left are at the front. So I go sit in the front and, you know, I was scared to say anything. I didn't say anything. I just shut up and listened and took notes and, and I got through the first two levels and then I went back for the third level and I finally got some confidence. So I started to, ask the odd question and speak up and I'll tell you I was out of my comfort zone and I'm going man like I must really love hockey if I'm going to put myself through the stress and anxiety with all these adults and I had no experience coaching and then it was after that where it's like okay my rationale was to make me a better player so I kind of put the coaching on the back burner for for now but then I remember in 84 in the Olympics the um the high school i was attending had a tv on and the the team canada games were on and it was usually during math which was great because i hated math i'd skip out and you know hey i gotta go to the bathroom and i'd disappear for an hour and wouldn't come back i'd watch the team canada games and i fell in love with that at the time in 1984 the logo it was a really cool logo and the colors and just everything and it was like it was like okay uh, I made a vow to myself that within 10 years, I was going to represent Canada um, in hockey. And I wrote it on a piece of paper and I put it in my binder. And everything after that was all about me becoming a, a better player so that I could one day play for King Canada. I didn't care about the NHL, couldn't, couldn't care less. Didn't interest me. It was great to watch with my dad. Didn't matter. Didn't know how I was going to get there just knew that's that was it that was my goal and so I became very focused you know on my off ice um you know back then you know it was all about steroids and just getting big and strong and being a muscle head and that's you know the former football guys were the strength and conditioning coaches so you just get bigger and there you go 
So over the course of a couple of years, I put on about 40 pounds. I was training like crazy. Um, and back then the age difference was, um, uh, it, it was different from today. So we had midget was U16, juvenile was U18 and junior was U20. So I played my midget under my dad. Um, so Bantam and midget, like all the way through. And then after that, I had different coaches in juvenile and junior. Um, and back then, as you probably, you know, understand watching slap shot from 1977, you know, it was a different era and, you know, a different skill set and mental toughness required to work your way up the ladder. So I did my best to work the way up the ladder, but as you get to the top, you know, the cream rises to the crop, but in my case, the, the heavier curds sink to the bottom and I was one of those curds. So I was getting it done on will and uh, determination and fitness because not a lot of guys were into fitness then. And I would, I, would, I would kill anybody and run over anybody to get to that Team Canada goal. And I was so singularly focused. I was in university, it didn't matter. Like I'd, I'd try and get my class done. I was working part-time sport check, coincidentally enough, where you also spent some time. But um, my goal was to, you know, I, I had a 10-year plan. I didn't have a plan. I had a 10-year goal and I wanted to get there. And so in juvenile and junior, I had absolutely horrible coaching. Um, my dad was very um, firm and fair and consistent. And he told me, I'm going to be harder on you than anybody else because I don't want anybody to accuse me of favoritism of you being my son. So he was really tough on me. But I understood it, and he told me that every year. And it's like, no, I'm fine with that. Just help make me better. And he didn't really know a lot about hockey, but I think he knew a lot about life, and he taught me a lot of life skills. But when I jumped up into juvenile and junior, I had four years of just absolutely horrible coaches. And this is the era of Graham James, a lot of sexual abuse, a lot of physical abuse, emotional abuse, um, horrible stuff. I went through a whole bunch of it. Um, a bunch of my teammates actually were with Graham James. I mean, I don't want to go down that path here, but um, just absolutely terrible stuff. And I think that just that you'd survive that era as a player, um, you know, it made you a lot tougher. Um, anyways, I get to the end of my junior career by Christmas as a 20 year old, I wasn't having fun. I was in Spokane, um, just again, just negative coaching and I, I you know, injuries, everything. And I just said, you know, enough's enough. If I'm not going to be contributing, if I'm not, if the coach isn't going to take the time to connect with me on a personal level as a human being and try to help me achieve my goals, there's no point in me being here anymore. So I packed it up. I went home at Christmas. I took about a year, year and a half to get my head screwed on straight. Um, a university recruited me to come play come September. I went for three days to UofL, Lethbridge, and, you know, they had me in a bunch of Mickey Mouse classes, and I just said, forget it. Like, I've already done almost three and a half years of university. Like, I'm not going to go back, take a bunch of crap just to play hockey. It's stupid. So I, I, I quit. I moved back to Calgary, finished my degree, and it was, it was in that year and a half time period where I go, you know, I had a chip on my shoulder. I was a little bit pissed off because I didn't know if I was ever going to make that goal. Like as a player, I probably wasn't going to play for Team Canada. So I was a little bit pissed off and, um, you know, and just how everything ended with injuries and just kind of a, a, 
a transactional coach for the last four years and, and a variety of coaches and teams. It just seemed to be, you know, that era of abuse and dictatorship and I'd had enough, but I, I still love the game. And so I was taking psychology and sociology at the time. And that's what I got my first degree in. And I, I thought, you know, I love, I still love hockey. I love the game. And I, I wonder, you know, how can I stay involved in it? Um, and so Dr. George Kingston, actually, who was coaching UFC at the time, I had tried out for him a couple of times and I'd never made the team, but he kept me around as a practice player for a bit. And my cousin played. And so he knew me and he asked if I would come and help him at uh, the Lake Bonavista Hockey School in Southeast Calgary. So I went down there and I was there like six days a week, um, you know, after school, I'd drive down. So we'd be on the ice at four o'clock till about nine at night. Uh, like I said, six days a week. And, um, you know, George kind of gave me the curriculum and I was working with a lot of their coaches and I was just kind of moving pucks and trying to get a feel for things. And I really liked it. And well, my last year at Spokane, I was helping out with a midget team just to get extra ice. And so, you know, again, a puck pusher and just kind of jumping into drills and that. And so I go, you know, like I had a lot of terrible coaches my last four years. Like, I think I, it's not that tough to be a better coach than what I had. Just if you treat people like a human, you're going to automatically jump to the head of the line in front of these guys. And I, I liked it. I wanted to stay involved. So that's what I did. I, you know, George got me doing that. I think I did it for a couple of years, but I started coaching um, a Bantam AA team that year with a couple other guys I met at the Bonavista Hockey School. And uh, we worked together for three years. And then I started to move up through the ranks. Um, and then it was, you know, so that, that was, you know, the moment I think, um, not when I took the coach certification classes for my own player interest, but when George kind of, you know, was a role model for me and, and kind of got me involved. And I thought, okay, you know what, I didn't play pro. People are going to, um, you know, maybe cast stones at me like, well, who are you? You didn't play pro, but like I, I, I think I used, um, I went back and I doubled down in my education to try to learn the art and the science of coaching, you know? So after I, I, I did my undergrad, I, um, I did the national coach Institute at my level four and five and advanced two or HP two, whatever they call it now through hockey Canada. Um, I taught with Dr. Joan Vickers in neuromotor psychology for a couple of years and worked in a research lab. And I started to get exposed to all these ideas and the art and the science of coaching. And um, I think that that, you know, over that period of time, I started to realize, you know, I, I, I think I can do this. So it's a long answer to your first question, but, and I think it kind of paves the way for some other stuff to, to follow here. But, um, you know, that was kind of the, the, the process and the context into which I learned I could coach. Yeah, no, there's a lot there and, and really interesting stuff, particularly how you became kind of a student of the coaching game while you were still playing. And I think that's super valuable. Like I've spoken to coaches on other episodes where, you you can learn new things as a coach but sometimes you forget what it feels like to put them into play as a player whether it's tactically or whether it's just like that human connection like you were saying like you know you, you kind of forget how a coach makes you feel as a player once you're a long time removed so interesting you started the journey while you were still playing and could really tie the two together 
But talking about some of the coaches you had, you know, can you recall any specific either posit positive or negative experiences from coaches that you played for that perhaps really influenced you, influenced you to become a coach or maybe influenced how you were going to coach or how you were not going to coach? Definitely. I think, um, like, as I mentioned, like my dad was really good, like, um, firm, but fair. I remember he always said, and, um, he, you know, so I had him, you know, all through, like as a kid growing up, you know, and we played outdoors until I remember the first time being indoors was, um, Peewee. So you 14 at that time was Peewee, I think. Anyway, yeah, we were in the Max Bell for the first time. I remember going, holy smokes, this, this ring's big. But um, my dad was a coach, and he was firm and fair, and he didn't take any crap. And um, I remember him actually getting in fist fights with other parents because parents were, um, you know, screaming at him to play their kid more and all this. And he, he used to say, if you miss a practice, you miss a game, no exceptions. You know, and if you don't phone or tell them that you can't come, no, you miss the next game. I don't care. Like we might have two more practices before that game, but no, you miss practice. Screw you. You're out. So it was, he was very black and white. And um, I think that that rubbed off on me, you know, we're a byproduct of our environment. Um, and so I, I would characterize him though, being a very good coach, not technically or tactically, but just principled and, and from a, a humanistic point of view. And then as soon as I left him, I had a revolving door of um, coaches and they were, they all had their warts. I mean, my dad wasn't perfect. Like, you know, technically, tactically, probably didn't know a lot, but you know, you didn't need to know a lot. You just got to be fair and keep everybody moving and having fun and, and contributing. So the guys in the four years in juvenile and junior, they were all horrible. Like I, I wouldn't want to play for any of them, but the positive side of that is, I think that that helped make me realize that, you know, I want to go into coaching because these guys are clowns. Right. So um, I think, you know, from my, my perspective at the time as a 17 to a 20 year old, you, you've got a limited perspective. And um, I just remember if, like I said, my dad was black and white and if you did something that you couldn't back up as a coach, um, or you treat somebody unfairly and you don't have any rationale, you can't explain it just, just because that's the way it is to me, that didn't fly. So that really made me resentful of, of those bad coaches. And I, I, I think, I think those coaches would be considered coach centric, um, that they were there for themselves and for their own ego, maybe to win, um, and make themselves look good and take the credit. And then when they lose, they'd come in and they'd kick the garbage can and blame the, the players, you know? And I, so I learned very early that it was a, a transaction. Like if you don't perform well, you're going to get in crap and it's your fault. But if you do well and the team does well, and it's good results, the coach take the credit. So I didn't think that was right. Um, and so I think that helped form my coaching philosophy later. But at the time, you kind of had to live that experience to, to kind of learn about yourself a little bit. So I think those were both examples of positive and negative um, influences um, from a coach's perspective for myself. Yeah, nice. And, and so, so true. I remember, I know as a coach myself, even sometimes you might have in your head, like we, I think we all do, of a, of a 
poor coaching experience that you never want to be like, and you, you almost want to be the opposite. But at times, you'll kind of hear yourself and think, oh, I'm, sl- I'm slipping a little bit. You know what I mean? I, I can hear that person. Um, yeah. But I find that's something that, that you're constantly thinking about as a coach is thinking back on what you liked, what you didn't like. And it's a, it becomes a big part of who you are as a coach now. But uh, look, you have an extensive history of coaching hockey at a range of levels over a long period of time. Can you share with us, I guess, how you've personally evolved as a coach over your lifetime around hockey? Like you just mentioned, the game has changed so much and even coaching has has changed so much or sometimes, unfortunately, not enough. But a lot's happened. I guess, how did Coach Dean change from working with Team Canada through to the Western League to university hockey and beyond? And, And what's kind of been the evolution of your coaching philosophy along that road? Well, I think when I look back, I was, um, you know, byproduct of the era and, you know, toughness was valued and, you know, it was hook and hold and slash and do dirty stuff. And I mean, the rules were enforced differently. It was, it was a different time, just like now, you know, Black Lives Matter, everything else. I mean, it's, it's tough to, you know, for us to sit here today and go back to the seventies and the eighties and, you know, and, and truly understand it unless we've lived it. And just like, you know, everybody's upset about tearing down statues, um, you know, in the U.S. that, you know, are Republican, Confederate, you know, people that supported slavery and all that, and they want to tear them down, they're tearing them down. And I was actually thinking about today as I was out walking, and it's, you know, at the time that you go through life, that era is that era and you just accept it so in my case um you just accepted it was slap shot era and that's what it was and the coaches were dictators and abusive and it's just what it was if you want to play the game that's the price of admission um you know and it's almost similar to like the concussions in the nhl like you know and and then the the um cte and all the other stuff and these guys are like committing suicide i mean at the time, everybody just wants to play pro. Maybe not everybody knows about the concussions. So, you know, they sign up to do it. Now, if they don't know about it and they get it, then I guess you do have a right to go and, and kind of sue the NHL or whatever. And I mean, we can get into discussion of that. But there's, it's tough to judge an era. At the end of the day, it's tough to go back in time and judge an era retroactively. That's what I'm saying here. Um, it might not be right by today's standards, but at those standards of that era, it was accepted. So I think my evolution as a coach, I, I've lived through that slap shot era and it's progressed and become more modern. I like what you said, maybe it hasn't changed enough yet. And I, and I don't think it has, and I think it will continue to change. But when I started, like you said, I was a byproduct of who I was as a player, who I was as a person, and the tough guys were valued. So I valued coaching like a tough coach. Um, I imitated those guys. Um, you know, the guys that I had through juvenile and junior. I had a minor dose of positivity and um, fairness, I think, from my dad. And then based on my own playing experience, kind of being a third, fourth line guy, sometimes second line guy. Um, I had a soft spot for the underdog 
So I'd want to put those people in chance to succeed. And I'd be accused of, you know, why are you giving the third line time in the last five minutes or, you know, whatever. Right. So I kind of had this mix kind of going around. And so I started coaching in 1986 and I would say right through 95. So 10 years, I was very uncertain. I was still trying to feel my way out as a coach. And along the way, I was, you know, I was trying to read books. I was attending coaching clinics and seminars and trying to get better, um, you know, and just trying to come to terms with what my coaching philosophy was. You know, I did, I did all the extra education. Um, and I think that from the, I, even though I did all the stuff on a scientific and part of coaching background through education in the 90s, I was still leaning toward that, you know, black or white kind of tough guy coach. But I, I think for some reason I had a, like, it did click in, in the early 2000s. And I, by this time now I'd coached, um, you know, midget AAA, junior A, tier two, major junior um, national team. I'd been coaching in the pros for a while, you know, in the NHL and scouting. And, you know, and I, I don't know what it was, but I do remember, um, you know, and you know, John, uh, the Colombian, John Castro, John. So I met John in about 2004 and I would, if I'm writing my retrospective history and eras, I would go until about 95 from 86. And then from 95 to 2004 would be another 10 year block where I was struggling with this conceptualization of what my coaching philosophy was. And it wasn't, I had one but it was changing. It was evolving. Like the first 10 years is pretty static. Next 10 years, I was like, yeah, I don't know if I like this. I got to figure it out. I was like a chameleon. I was trying to change things up and make things fit based on the team I was coaching. Um, and in 2004, when I met John and then he further challenged me with other ideas around coaching. And uh, I think that that's when I really started to sharpen my, my philosophy. And I, I would say, I struggled again with it from about 04 till about, I'm going to even say 2010. And then from there on for the last 10 years, I have firmly crystallized my own coaching philosophy. So it's been a long process. Um, you know, and I think when you start to develop a broader base of experiences, I think that then you start to, you know, you get these different perspectives from other people, yourself, you start to reflect back. Um, you continue to pursue other reading and education to make yourself better and to understand deeper. And, and so now how I describe myself is I, I'm, I'm at peace with who I am over the last 10 years as a coach. Like I've developed my own authentic coaching philosophy. I'm not trying to be somebody I wasn't or like, you know, like John Wooden. Well, I can't be John Wooden, um, you know, Mike Krzyzewski, I can't be Mike Krzyzewski, I can't be Mike Keenan, I have to be Dean Holden. And I, it took me, you know, geez, Dave, like, like 20 some years to really develop my, what I would say my authentic coaching style is. And I think that's a reflection of the eras that we've moved into and away from, because I think now I'm, I'm very much athlete centered and I'm very much more holistic. I'm a believer in developing skills and tactics. Um, through uh, modifying constraints within contextually realistic, competitive, dynamic learning environments and performance environments. 
And everything I do now in my coaching, it's all based around the gamification of the environment. And that's how I teach coach certification now as I throw out all this individual skill and drill crap. And it's all about gamification. And at the end of the day, it's got to be purposeful. It's got to be intentional. And it's got to help. The end, end result has to help the athletes prepare for the actual, the actual payoff, which is being able to perform in a game. So can you make the right decisions under pressure, well fatigued, on demand, and that all encompasses all the individual skills, individual tactics, team tactics, and then you apply the systems and strategy. All that stuff has to be able to be on demand. And yeah, I mean, so for me, in a nutshell, my coaching philosophy has evolved into three words. And it used to be four pages to three pages to two pages because I type it all out, but now it's fun, learn, return. That's it. Simple, three things. So fun, if we're not having fun, like we play hockey, we don't work hockey. You got to make it fun. If it's not fun, get out, go do something else, find something else that's fun. Learn, like if you're not learning, then you're, you're regressing. Again, go find something else. And then return, it speaks to, do your players want to come back tomorrow? Are they looking forward to the next session? Did they, are they, your age group kids, like my kids, do they want to go back and play hockey next year? Sadly, both of them quit after Devin just quit this past year. He had two years of what he considered subpar coaching. And he just said, I'm not having fun. I'm not going to return. So hockey has that retention issue around it as well. So fun, learn, and return. That's my, that's my, my philosophy. That's excellent. And I think that's something that, that every coach, like I just wrote it down myself, those three words mean so much, particularly the return. Um, I know here in Newcastle, we, we do sessions each week with kids and adults. And it's a, it's a kind of a, not a debate, but a conversation we have with coaches who work with us quite frequent, sorry, quite frequently. And that's, is, we have to do what the players enjoy that they want to come back. And sometimes as a coaches, we're in a real hurry to get them better and want it to look good and think they, they have to be able to do this, like work harder, but the fun needs to be a priority. And sometimes I know I've run a session where I've had other coaches look and be like, well, you know, you kind of be doing more there or you can be pushing them in a different direction or maybe harder, but it's balancing that, yeah, but this is where they're at, that they're loving this, they're gonna come back next week or tomorrow. Um, and I find that's, that's tough for a coach because sometimes you feel that, I know early on you feel like you're almost doing them a disservice because you can be, you feel like you can be teaching them more. Um, I don't think we put enough emphasis on that, them wanting to come back tomorrow, which is the fun, the fun aspect, right? Mm, yeah, no, I agree 100% because I mean, at the end of the day, they're the clients of the system. Mm. And if they don't want to come back and they walk away, they've got other sport choices they can make and other things to do their time. They can get on those freaking video games and that's a choice in itself, yeah. you know, and it's not coming back to your sport training. It's then sitting there twiddling their thumbs, literally. So everybody's got choice. And, um, you know, and I think that that could be one of, that's one of my, my uh, answers to one of your later questions is just people have a choice, you know, and they can vote with their feet. Mm -hmm. So I guess in, in the, you know, as we said, a lot's changed, but 
in today's world, if you had to define the ideal definition or role of a coach, what is that in 2020? Well, I, I believe, like I've mentioned, I mean, it, it, as a coach, you got to care about your individual athletes. Um, you really got to work to connect with them on an individual uh, basis, build a relationship. And part of that relationship building is trust. So you've got to get to know each other and it can be, you know, what's your favorite color? Who's your favorite superhero? Um, what teams, your favorite team, what do you like to eat? Um, you know, speaking to the minor hockey level, I mean, that's, those are things you, you talk about. I mean, with the older players, you know, what are your hobbies? What are your passions outside of sport? You know, how, how are your kids doing? Uh, you know, what grade are they in? What sports they play? I mean, you got to show an interest in other people. And when you do that, um, that's when you start to develop that trust and that relationship. And I mentioned um, to you, I think before we started to tape, um, how I operate is I, I use something called appreciative inquiry. So that means I ask questions and I, I show a genuine interest in learning about that person and I'm appreciative to have their feedback and their time and, you know, want to get to make that connection. So I, I think it's just, again, it reflects my authenticity as a coach because this is who I am. And so I can use this approach and it doesn't feel shallow or contrived. It's genuine. And it's, you build that trust in that relationship and they start to share more with you and you start to share with them. They see you're a human and it's not just a, like a coach athlete power dichotomy. It's, you know, this, we're both humans here and we we each have to play a role, but you know, we can still be uh, personal about it. And I think that once you develop that, um, I've mentioned Socratic questioning, which I use because I don't believe in telling people what to do. I think a manager tells people what to do. A leader helps guide and inspire people down the path of self-discovery and what direction they should go. And so what I do is I, I look at myself as a problem solver and a change agent. And I do a gap analysis to see where they're at currently. And I do that from my own observations and my own knowledge and expertise over almost 40 years of coaching now. And I involve the individual as well. I might involve other people, other experts, other, other players, other coaching staff, like sports psych, uh, strength and conditioning coaches, like depending on the age level, right? But I do a gap analysis on where that person is now. I get their input on it. And then together we sit down to help plan what path do we need to go forward with. So it's very much individual. It's very much athlete centered. It's very holistic. It takes into a, a lot of things into account. Um, you know, at the younger levels, you know, you don't get as complicated as that. You just kind of find out a few things about what, you know, what they want and, and how they think they can get better and you guide them. And at the older levels, you got more time and energy and resources to, to pay attention to them and, and help build them up. Um, and then, you know, at the higher levels, obviously you got to think about the function of the team as a whole and, and some people get slot into roles, but that doesn't mean it's a death sentence either. Like I think that the, you know, the fourth line um, penalty killer needs to be valued and they also need to be included in discussions and plans on how they can get better so that maybe one day they could be a third line player or maybe even a second line or what other skill set could they bring um, to the team to help make them valuable. Um, you know, and I, d I think too many coaches, once you make up your mind quickly on a person or a player and they just plug them into a role and that's it, you're done. 
And the only way that you're going to get out of that as a player is if you change teams or there's a coaching change and maybe someone else views you in a different light. So I think that, you know, the definition of a coach is somebody, as I said, somebody who cares and it, and it should be about transforming the individual person, not transactional leadership where you're just hoping to get something out of them. So you benefit. So it's, you know, for me, it's, um, I think it's very much a, professional consideration when you're a coach like it's something to be taken seriously and 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 it should be a two-way street because you as a coach want to progress as well and I think the only way you do that is by getting to know your players and then developing your own performance path and, and your own gap analysis on how you can become better yeah I guess I want to throw another one in there like because I agree with that. If you're going to coach, it's something that should be taken seriously. And, and with your gap analysis or any analysis, for, for a minor hockey coach that might be working, like in Australia, they'll work with kids. There's generally one practice a week and one to two games a week. Um, of that time, how much time would you say you spend away from the rink, either pl preparing, planning, or analyzing the, the team's performance or individual's performance? on a weekly basis like how much time would you add to those one practice and, and one to two games I, uh, my first advice would be is the ratio is wrong um, you need to have mm -hmm. two practices a week maybe one game or three practices a week and no games um, you could also do two practices a week maybe one game but maybe do an off ice don't need to be on the ice get off the ice forget about the ice especially Australia. Like, look at my beautiful background here. Like, I don't see any ice in my background, you know, um, you know, um, in, when I was working in South Korea, there was one outdoor rink downtown Seoul and that was it. I mean, the weather just isn't conducive, right. To have an outdoor rink and there is very few rinks. So as I've worked all across the world, you know, to me, it, there, there's, there's three things it comes down to in, um, you know, how do you, how do you start to build, build your sport of hockey? And, um, your, do you have a cultural history of it? You know, is, is the first thing, do you have infrastructure and do you have the time and money? So those three things, it's kind of like, if you have two out of those three, you'll probably be okay. If you have one out of the three, it's an uphill battle. If you got zero, you're going to be fighting it hard. And I know in Australia, there's not a cultural history for it. There's not a lot of rinks and it's costly, right? Um, you know, and it's going to be tough. And I think that in a country like Australia, where you, you might be 0 for 3 on those things, you've got to build up, you've got to build up your culture and your history. You've got to build up infrastructure, but you need time and money to get it done. Like you're going to have to come up with a plan. And if I was down there in Australia, I'd be doing a ton of stuff off ice. What I did in Korea is I started to get floorball and uh, road hockey going. And I was looking to steal athletes from speed skating and figure skating. Um, I was doing a bunch of different things. Like I, I, I did a gap analysis. What is the current situation here? Because they, they told me where they want to go. My the reason I was hired was to get them to qualify for as a, as a host nation in 2018. They wanted their men's and women's hockey team to be deemed worthy so that they could go but it's not just are the teams going to be competitive that wasn't it the way that the entry ticket was 
we need a 12-year plan or longer to show us that you're going to grow hockey and development in Korea from grassroots to pro to national team like everything male and female you need to have a comprehensive plan the Korean Ice Hockey Association wanted it then they give it to the IIHF who would approve it then the IIHF would would send it to the IOC and get it approved then they would allow Korea to get those two teams in and we all knew that they weren't going to be that competitive I mean unless you have a full team of imports and that defeats the whole purpose so I think that you have to you have to look at your your culture and your history and your infrastructure and how much money and time you have and at the end of the day in Australia like spend more time practicing and playing playing the game not not real games but but scrimmages floorball um do some stuff outside play play rugby play play uh, uh what do you call it um not frisbee ultimate um play basketball play field hockey any of these invasion sports help provide um common principles of play to ice hockey so you don't need rinks you can overcome this right like you still need a rink to have hockey but you can overcome some training shortcomings in ice time and cost by getting outside right so i don't know that's what i would do um you know if i was there is i would definitely do a gap analysis and i would start to implement other things there um i think the thing about fun and how how they return is you know i've mentioned gamification like i'm big on that now consider a video game why do kids play video games there's a level of challenge but there's also it's achievable challenges so it's like i'm not a big video game guy like i play a couple of them just on my apps and my phone but um you know there's consistent reward levels and they're easily achievable but then there's also some that are a little bit tougher so they stretch the kids a little bit but until then there's some lower level rewards that they can almost always achieve so they get these little dopamine hits because they they've accomplished something and when you get a pat in the back constantly or told you know that was good keep it up that was good keep it up people are going to be attracted to that so if you just look at video game design and it's called gamification it's more in the math physics categories but i i've taken a few courses on it through my professional development at Mount Royal University on how do you gamify the classroom how do you gamify the course and just it's fascinating stuff and so i think this is what i teach now in my coach certification here is how to gamify um the learning environment especially at the young le- levels because we want that whole piece around fun and learn but we got to have them return yeah that that's and that's something we're starting to see here more and more is more off ice activities um and and the good thing here is a lot of kids are are multi sport particularly in the off season because in australia when the weather's nice in the summer it's tough to get the kids in the rink which is a good thing they're off they're off doing other things so yeah it's starting to spread around which is good um look you're you're a very well traveled coach internationally and you've devoted a large amount of time and research into studying how coaches coach and how kids or players learn i guess in your travels and research what are some of the concerns you see in minor hockey coaching or coaching of kids sports in general 
Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, I've and I've had the good fortune to coach a wide variety of sports too, like um, you know, the gymnastics and soccer, lacrosse, basketball, rugby, um, you know, geez, handball. Um, I think that what I've seen is you mentioned too, it's like some coaches feel they're in a rush. They they they, they need like we want to see learning now. And you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, they want to feel good about themselves and that's the culturally perception of cultural perception of what a good coach is is somebody that teaches and then the kids learn and then they, they exhibit that behavior. But people don't realize that learning is often never seen in one session. Um, I think that um, the old school uh coaching that still exists the traditional coaching the skill and drill and we're going to we're, we're going to break down the game we're going to take the game tear it apart break it down to its smallest possible levels of technical skill and then we're going to try and rebuild it so we're going to do static puck control you're going to stand there and you're going to go back and forth with the puck and then you're going to you know or you're going to do it um forehand or to your front and then you're going to do it on your forehand side your strong side and you're going to stand you do it on the your backhand side or your weak side and you know and then we're going to start moving we're going to throw pylons in we're going to have some you're going to you know puck control around pylons and then you're going to have uh, maybe a coach waving a stick at you you're going to get one of those stupid pep things or whatever those useless money grabs are those Connor mcdavid sponsored crap where you have to put a puck under one of these sticks or like it's all garbage right in my opinion I've been around almost 40 years and I've gone through my period of time where I thought, oh yeah, this is all great. None of this stuff is contextually specific. We're training kids to do stuff slowly. We're training kids to do it improperly because they're going to have their head down to look at their stick, to look at the pep or whatever the little stupid little stick thing is that you've asked them to go around or the pylon. There's no pressure realistic pressure where another kid's coming to try and take the puck away from them there's no pressure of time like there's no constraints like well we're not going to measure it in a shift you got 30 seconds 45 a minute to get it done and then physiologically you're tired you have to get off there's no pressure from the scoreboard there's no accountability to the kid to get better to not get better to do these sessions right so all the old school traditional thinking the whole part whole the split stuff down into the micro detail and we build it back up to get to the game is all bs the research supports this is not the way to do it this is the exactly the opposite way to teach if you want to get a kid to play and perform in a game and yet our coach certification continues this fallacy and what happens we train kids in the wrong way they grow up their playing experience is all in the wrong way they retire they become coaches and it's like the cycle of abuse it just continues and we don't change these certification programs. There's like a 40 year lag behind academic research and applied academic research, which works and the current coach certification models and then what people are actually doing. There's too much emphasis on the science and not enough on the art. It's taken me almost 30 years and I'm into my almost 40th year to clearly elucidate my coaching philosophy. I can count on one hand how many times in coach certification courses that's ever been tasks of me because it's always about strength and conditioning. It's always about physiology. 
It's always about individual technical skills. How do you teach them? It's not even the how, Dave. It's you must teach them. And here's like the huge checklist of individual technical skills you got to cover. And we're going to assign percentages of them at the U7 level, U9, U11. You must do, you must do. That's all crap. Who decided this anyway? Some deep thinker at Hockey Canada or Hockey USA or whatever that has no background in pedagogy and, and statistics. I mean, it, it's insane. So to me, one of my biggest pet peeves is we're, we're, we're doing ourselves a great disservice and we're going counter to my fun, learn, return. We're having no fun by doing technical skills. There's no learning because kids are not engaged and they don't want to come back. There's no return. So we're shooting ourselves in the foot in a number of ways. So we need to do, we need to redo our understanding of what a coach certification model course curriculum is and we need to redo how it's delivered and then we got to get it out there it's almost like you know right now in the pandemic until we get a vaccine and until we get it widely distributed we're all going to be sitting here doing zoom calls we're all going to be locked down and it ain't going to change the western league can try to start to play in january the quebec league did and they've closed down again i mean it's uncommon sense. Like, let's not beat our heads into the wall here. Like, we need to coach the the person and the individual and not worry about the sport. We need to incorporate life lessons. We need to use the research. We need to, and I, I like to say I'm a pracademic because even though I'm doing my PhD, I understand there's a gap between a common coach and what they can and can't read and what they can and can't access in an academic journal in order to gain the current research knowledge because the coach certification systems aren't delivering it. There's a huge gap and nobody wants to read a bunch of academic crap if they're not capable of it. They need these points distilled down and they need the, a, a new curriculum to be brought forward and a new methodology. And I'm working on that right now. But I mean, it's not their fault because the certification system is screwed. I mean, that's just the, the, the guts of it. So to me, the one big issue in, in coaching today is that it goes completely counter to my philosophy of fun, learn, and return. Um, I mean, I've got about six other things I could list off, but I mean, that's, that's a big one. So, you know, you let me know if you want me to go into more detail on it or if you want me to say any other um, areas that I would look at. But to me, that's the number one, one the, the lack of a, of a current, um, efficient, effective, intentional, purposeful coach certification system. Yeah, and I agree with that. And I think there's not enough coaching resources. And every country is different, um, but not enough coaching resources out there to keep up with what players need today. I think going back, though, to your point of... of um, you know, the apparatuses on the ice and, and players doing uh, working on, on individual skills, so to speak, where it's a set course, go around the cone, put the puck under here, and they're building those bad habits of having their head down and there's no pressure and there's no decision-making and things like that, is I think that a lot of coaches struggle to do different because that kind of practice is really praised by parents and even young players because they're on Instagram, they're on social media where they're seeing a lot of clips of McDavid doing that. And they're thinking, that's what I want to do. That's how you get better. 
And I know a practice where you have a lot of apparatuses on the ice and have, have kids doing those drills. And I've sat with parents that look at that and think, this is awesome. Um, so I guess, how do we, as coaches, how do we battle that? Because to me, and, and I do that as well. So I'm not saying I'm, not saying I'm perfect. Um, I, I do, and I think there's a time and a place for some of that stuff. But I know I, my, uh, I know a, a good practice for me as a player and as a coach is it doesn't look good. There's a lot of it breaking down. And to me, when a, a, a drill or a game breaks down, that's when players are learning. So if I'm running a practice, I don't want it to be smooth and look great like it's this polished machine because players aren't getting better. There needs to be error. There needs to be a turnover. There needs to be a giveaway. And, and that's how players learn. But like I said, as a coach, sometimes when it looks messy and doesn't look pretty with all those bells and whistles, it's seen by parents as this is not good. This coach is not doing a good job. How do we, how do we combat that as coaches? Well, I'll throw it back, right back at you. Like, how, how would you combat that? Like, you're actively doing this. So what, what steps do you take in Newcastle or wherever? Like, what are you doing to, to help solve that? Well, I think when it's a, in it's a, if it's a team environment, it's educating the parents. So, you know, parent meetings early um, and, and bring them in on, on here's the why. Uh, but when it's, it's smaller kind of sessions or, or camps, um, you know, it's, it's finding a balance. So they get a bit of that eye candy that, oh, okay, this is good. And then mixing in that decision-making. Um, but a lot of it with camps and sessions is through the player. Like us really trying to educate the player on, on kind of this is why we're doing it and how did that feel and what did you learn there and hoping that that will get back to the parent. But um, as I said, I've even felt it where, where I'd, I'd like to get better at that because I felt I've run a, a good practice before, but I can almost feel the eyes thinking, ah, that's not great. And I've run bad practices as well and can feel those eyes. As I said, no one's perfect, but um, I just feel a lot of coaches get pat on the back real quick when it's a pretty practice that looks great. Uh, and if you're being really critical, sometimes you're looking at, it's like, okay, where's the decision-making here from the players? Where are they, where are they having opportunity to fail and it's costing them. So it's a turnover or it's, or it's under pressure and the puck goes the other way. Um, so yeah, that's how we do it. As I said, with teams, educating the parents and, and with smaller sessions, really trying to educate the players and, and kind of get them to tell us why. But it's still something that I think all coaches battle with. Yeah, it's a, it's a constant battle. And I think, you know, like I say, my biggest thing is um, we need to, overhaul and revamp the coach certification system um, and the delivery methods the um, you know I just did one on Sunday on Thanksgiving over here the day before Thanksgiving and it was um, I'm given four hours to supposedly deliver four and a half hours of lecture material with a few little videos like you know 30 seconds to one minute videos thrown in for content very little discussion and then an hour of ice for an hour and a half of content. And I mean, I've talked to Hockey Alberta and they're like, yeah, we understand. Like, you know, you're gonna have to cut some stuff, but I violate all principles of adult learning. 
by standing up there and lecturing for four hours with very minimal breaks to try and jam in as much as I can. And so I, I, I tell the, the um, coaches that going in and I cut and paste and I take some breaks and I, you know, I'm still violating a lot of the um, adult learning principles because I like to only do seven slides max in a row and then have time to do, you know, think, pair, share, or to do small group discussion on what we just learned and then work our way through. So like, like I said, the, the coach education thing is the big one. The, the parent education is, is just as big. And I think that you need to continue to do what you're doing to educate the parents and, and early, early and often with parent meetings. Um, again, um, I thought I read just somewhere recently, like an adult might have an eight minute attention span at best, or a child might have 12 seconds. So your parent meeting, you've got to cover an awful lot of stuff, but I think in the back of your mind, you got to go, okay, I, like, um, your idea here, are quick hitters for questions at the end. I got to use quick hitters in my parent meeting. And I can't just do it once. I got to, you know, quick hitters, quick hitters, quick hitters. That's got to continue throughout the course of the season. And maybe you learn, you gamify that. You find ways to disguise educational components with the parents through parent socials, right? Maybe you have, you, you create a game where, um, okay, every parent here, put in one question you'd like to ask in the team, you throw it in a hat, and then maybe you pull out two or three questions, and, but you make some sort of a game or a challenge of it right you create two teams say okay this half of the parents are going to be the coach and the, you, the other half are going to be the parents and let's let's and you know and then you get discussion going right and uh, you break down some barriers and like you said dave there's a lot of preconceived notions on what does good coaching look like from the parents point of view even though in the coach's point of view and the kid's point of view right so well you've got to be they've got to be assertive they've got to have a plan they've got to be able to demonstrate the skills things should look clean. They're like little mini adults executing perfectly out there. And like you said, that's contrary to learning. It should be messy. It should be chaotic. And that's when there's a challenge. That's when the learning is actually going to happen. And as I mentioned, very rarely do you see learning in one, in one session. It's usually learning is just a, is this performance over time. You take a baseline measure, if you can, if it's an objective measure and you can do objective measures in some areas, tough in decision-making, but you know, how fast can they skate in, you know, in, in four strides? So you can measure that, right? And then over time, as they gain strength and condition, agility, balance, coordination, you measure them again and you measure them again. And now you've got data, objective data, but okay, how do we measure hockey sense? Well, I don't know, it's a tough question, but if all you're going to do is static drills and not put them into situations that require decisions, they're never going to get better. So we educate the coaches, we support the coaches, provide resources. We mentor the coaches because I think mentorship is a huge missing piece. We provide education for the players. We try to develop their understanding about why we're doing things and we educate the parents the whole way through. So, I mean, you can't, do one and ignore the others because you're going to have issues. It's got to be a whole comprehensive parent education, player education, coach education plan. So I think to me, that's, you know, you've got to find as many ways as you can to get to those parents. And, you know, you can email, you can hand out a sheet at the rink, you can have parent socials. I mean, there's a whole raft of ways to do it. But just remember, you might only have eight minutes 
So identify your key talking points that you want to get across. Use those first and forget about a lot of the other stuff. And then repeat, 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 hammer home those most important points over and over, right? And, and with parents, it's communication, like dialogue. Like you got to be open to have dialogue, right? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, one other thing I've learned is you need to know why you're doing things yourself as a coach if you're ready to explain that to parents. So I think a lot of those practices, you know, whenever I watch a practice, I always look at, okay, why, why are they doing this? And, and try to be critical in a positive way, but what's the purpose of this? And sometimes you can't see it. Uh, and so there may be a purpose, but sometimes I can't see it as an outsider looking in. But I know with all my practices, I try to, I've done the practice plan, then I try to look back, okay, why are we doing that? Or this is why I put this drill in, but why, what are we really achieving out of that drill and how can it be done better? So if, yeah, if a parent wants to quiz you after um, as a coach, you want to be prepared that, no, this is why we do that, or this is why we didn't do that. Um, and have a reason, not just why well, this is just, this just looks really good. You know, this is a drill. That exactly. Looks well, and I think too, like that just speaks to the, um, like I had a couple other things written down that completely touch on that. And just quickly, like I wrote down um, that old school coaching approach that I mentioned from the seventies. I mean, I think a lot of that, I don't think there's as much abuse and negativity out there, but it's still, in a lot of cases, it's still a dictatorship. Um, there's a lack of leadership. It's more management and dictatorship from behalf of the coaches. And again, it, that, that falls back to the, the certification program. Um, how we train the players is we're creating dependent players. We're not creating independent players. In an invasion sport, we need to create independent players. And we, just like as parents, we should be wanting to create independent uh, young adults and children so that when they are out of the nest, they have to make their own decisions. And by fostering dependency and maintaining it over too long of a period of time, we're actually doing those kids and young adults a disservice because they become dependent on us. And then when that, when that coach is no longer able to guide them by the hand, like during a game, they have to make an instantaneous decision. They'll hesitate and they'll look to the bench is coach going to yell at me? Should I pass? Should I shoot or should I dribble? Um, there's no room for hesitation in an invasion game. And the limits to human informational uh, processing capacity mean you can only attune to one thing at a time. So if your teammate is yelling at you, the coach is yelling at you, your parent is yelling at you, the fans are yelling, the music's blaring, and you're trying to skate with your head up because you've been taught to skate your head down to look at pep what are you going to do? Like it, you're, you're, you've, you've completely screwed that athlete up. So I, I say that coach dependency is a large part of it is because the coaches are always yelling instruction. So coaches shut up, shut up and watch. You don't want to be an Xbox coach. You can't shut up, watch. And there's a difference between um, coaching and teaching um, and coaching happens during a game and that's positive reinforcement and maybe asking them what they saw. That's coaching in a game. It's not telling them they need to do something else or it's, it's, it's a different way to approach it. The teaching 
occurs during a practice in a learning environment where you now you still guide them you don't tell them you lay out the rules of the of the uh, activity but you let them solve the problem and your questioning approach needs to help guide them through how they work through figuring it out on their own and their own problems so that's another big aspect cost is another big one and we've kind of touched on that do more stuff off ice because ice time is your primary cost right um, Equipment sharing. Kids grow out of their equipment. Why don't we have an equipment bank secondhand, right? Let's let's get that going. Um, and then, like I said, it kind of goes back to the coach education. Poor coach support. You know, everybody up in the stands, the, the, the parents, they're all coach, owner, GM, and they're all criticizing you. They're always judging. And so with the parent education, hopefully that'll help that. But we need to increase our budgets for mentorship, long-term mentorship. And you have to have a mentor relationship. If you don't, you're on an island all by yourself. And I think we need the coaches to understand their value in and the impact they have in shaping all these kids and in, into people. Because it shouldn't be about creating hockey players. It should be about creating people. And then the next generation of officials, coaches, uh, sport administrators, offic- um, um, you know, people that run the, 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 the snack bar at the rink, the lawyers, the ditch diggers, doesn't matter. We're trying to create people. So you want to become a transformational coach, not a transactional coach. So those were kind of my, my, um, my pet peeves, but it all does go back to, to education. So I guess if, if coaching certification aside, if you came across a, a, a parent or, or a young adult thinking about getting in and helping out as a coach of kids sports, uh, I guess what is the best piece of advice you give to that young person or parent? I, well, I would say coach young kids because you're going to have to develop patience and understanding and the kids don't care if your T push has got to be at 87 and a half degrees and you're, you know, your spine's got to be, you know, activated at a, you know, in the lumbar position, like who cares? Shut up. Come up with a game where they have to learn how to crawl on the ice, how they have to learn to pick up stuffies from the ice. Let's try kicking a soccer ball. Let's try flipping the ringette ring with the upside down portion of your stick. Let's do a relay race. Let's not, you know what I mean? Like, don't worry any of the technique or tactics. You need to get down on one knee to be able to look the kid in the eye so you're on their level. You've got to use language that's understandable for the kid. You've got to learn patience. And I didn't have the benefit of any of that stuff because I started coaching before I was a parent. And one of the most valuable things for me is to have kids and then to take a genuine interest in how they see the world. And you need to learn to think like a kid. You've got to learn to think like your client. You can't be an adult thinking down on how am I going to do a U7 you got to put your kid hat on and I couldn't do it until I had them and so you need to be able to um, you need to be able to um, see the world how through a kid's eyes right Um, so for me the the best thing I did was when when I was teaching those hockey schools at the start like even though I was coaching Bantam AA AAA at the start I was coaching kids how to skate. I was teaching power skating. I was teaching 
skill development, even though it was all wrong back then, it wasn't the fact of what I was teaching and, and, and the how, it was the person side and that communication side, how to build rapport, how to, how to identify with the kids side. So for me, coach young kids, that's a huge challenge. And the second thing, Dave, I learned when I went to UFC, coach females. From a male perspective, for me to coach females, everything you said about the parents questioning you as to why are you doing this and that and what's your intention. As a male, I got that, you know, like tenfold coaching female hockey players. And it made me a better coach. And I, it would be interesting for a female coach to think about that. And if she'd only coach female coaches, go have her coach male coaches. Maybe that makes an impact too. So maybe if you coach the opposite gender, it might be uh, impactful. So those are the two things for me. Coach kids through the kids' eyes, coach the opposite gender. That's good. That's good advice. Look, as, as coaches, we all know that we can stray from our coaching philosophy. Like I mentioned it earlier, sometimes you, you hear your own voice out loud and you think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm creeping into someone I don't want to be or, or saying something I don't want to say. But I guess what is something that a coach can do to help stay on course during the season? Do you have a mental checklist or a question that you use yourself that can help coaches keep themselves in check? I think that at the start, I probably struggled with this as well. And I was making decisions that would probably benefit me or the team more than the individual. Um, you know, and I think we, you know, as a, as a younger coach, if you don't have a properly developed coaching philosophy, it's going to be, a time of experiential learning and you know you're going to make mistakes and that's natural and that's fine um, and then how do we expand on it and how do we learn to go forward so we don't make those same mistakes so um, for me I know that the first thing I, I always thought of was my own background and just all the all the abuse and the negativity I took from those four years of horrible coaches and I just had kind of told myself don't behave like that don't treat people that way. It's, 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 you know, you know how hurtful it is when that's directed at you. So it kind of came from my own personal experience as a player. And, and I officiated for four years as well through university. So I got a lot of abuse directed to me as an official. And I thought that was a really good way for me to learn to shut up and not yell at the, at the refs, you know, walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. Um, the other thing I, I, I always remember, I'd, I don't know if I heard it somewhere or I read it somewhere, but it's like act and behave and say as if your mom was in the same room or standing beside you. So whenever you're speaking publicly or, you know, in the locker room or to a, you know, an individual player or you're on the bench and the ref makes a bad call or whatever, you need to check yourself and think, what would my mom say? Like if I was to respond how I either did or I wanted to, what would, you know, you kind of hold yourself accountable. That's kind of like a check and a balance. Um, and then the last thing, once I became a parent, this, I think it impacts you greatly is at some point you have to turn those kids over to somebody else in a, 
teaching capacity in school or a sport capacity or a babysitting capacity and you can't always be there with them because you know most parents are you know do no harm right like they want the best for their kid and they're not going to deliberately abuse their kid or hurt their kid right accidents happen they're not intentionally going to do it but now we have to take that leap of faith and we have to put that faith in somebody else and i think for me i think that's what really impacted me is if i'm in the dressing room saying something on the bench or practice and that was my own kid would i act that way and that's not to mean i would take it the you know ex excuse poor behavior on behalf of my own kid but you know like my dad said dean i'm gonna i'm gonna coach you but I'm going to have to be harder on you than the other kids because I don't, don't want an you know, any outsiders accusing me of favoritism. So I, I, I think that's a real important check and balance. Like how would you want your own kid to be handled if it wasn't you handling them? Like, are you going to tolerate somebody swearing at them or kicking them or hitting them or worse or, you know, belittling them or bullying them? Like it, it's not going to happen. So I think when you become a parent, it's like your whole, it's a real good reality check for a lot of things in your life. So those are, those are the ways that I, I would, um, you know, help myself to maintain my, my um, adherence to my coaching philosophy. I've also heard, uh, I've been given some advice years ago of, of that you should record yourself coaching, like a, a dictaphone in your pocket or, or nowadays you can do it on your phone. Um, and I found great value in that. Uh, very cringeworthy to hear, but great value in that. Is that something that either you've done or would you recommend? Yeah, yeah. We we had to do it in Canada as part of our our old advanced one or HP one. Is we had to have somebody record us. Um, in a, I think it was in two practices and a game, and so that's in the locker room on the bench and then um, you, you know we're on the ice, and so we had to have like a mic clipped on and then you know the video camera and and we had to we had to analyze it and there were certain questions we had to answer and then we had to submit the um the vhs tape back in the day and the um our written analysis of ourselves back in the day um i remember at the time that was a real daunting task you know like boy um to be self-critical you know, and, and, and to have somebody else like shooting you and recording you and hearing it. And I mean, oh, geez, you know, like you're in sanctified ground here coming into the dressing room and all that. And I remember back in the day, because I was young, I was, you know, it was early 1990 and, and I was pretty leery about it, but it was um, highly impactful. Um, and I have done it since, but I'll answer that later on here. So, yeah, I think it's a good idea. So for you, you know, most teams, minor hockey teams in Australia, their practice is 60 minutes long. What does an ideal 60 minutes pra 60 minute practice look like for, for kids in minor hockey? Well, obviously it starts off the ice. I think you need to, um, you know, respond to every kid in the dress room and, you know, try and, you say, try and touch every kid at least once. Now, not doesn't necessarily mean physically, but you know, verbally and acknowledge their presence. And, you know, again, I go back to that um, trust building, connection building, transactional coach building, uh, authentic relationship where you take an interest in them and you try and, you know, do idle chit chat with them and get to know them. 
um, then I, you know, you can kind of, depending on the age, you can kind of maybe go over your, your practice outline real quick. Cause like, again, 12 second attention span isn't a lot. You don't have to go into any detail, just, you know, whatever. My practices are not very complicated. Um, you know, I, this past year, two years, I've been working with, um, you know, well, geez, all, all levels, like, but from, you know, you ain't learned to skate all the way up to university, but in general for a 60 minute practice, I would have kind of an opening energizer activity, which would be fun and it would be competitive, um, not competitive necessarily where we're going to punish the loser and celebrate the winner, but there's going to be some sort of accountability and an outcome, but it's going to have, um, it's going to involve everybody. There's not going to be sitting around and eliminating people. So they have to stand around and watch. Everybody's going to be going for the first 10 minutes. Then I go into contextual games and activities. And so for me, I spend an awful lot of time at all ages working on one-on-one -on -one. and I'd say half my practice is going to be one-on-one. -on -one. I've got a whole curriculum around that and two-on-one and one-on-two and then two-on-two and then three-on-two, three-on-two-on-three, three-on-three. But half my practice is one-on-one. -on -one. Like I will not, that's a non-negotiable. Then um, within that, there's a mix of learning and performance environments. And so I'll define what both are to the players, to my coaching staff and my parents. And I will make sure the players are aware of which one we're doing. Learning environments, we welcome mistakes. I want to see kids falling down. I want to see players making poor decisions. I want to see chaos. I want to see messiness. Fine. Now, I don't want to see in a, um, inattention or screwing around. Like you need to be focused. Like I'm not going to let you off the hook. Like just because it's a learning environment doesn't mean you screw around. No, it means we're using our time wisely. So I still got to hold them accountable, but it's a learning environment. We celebrate mistakes. It's okay. This is how we get better. Now, if you keep making the same mistake over and over, then I got to think, hmm, do they not understand? So then that's when I start to use the Socratic questioning a little bit more and delve into that. Maybe I have a, a coach whose role is, like um you know kind of a a, a needs a, a, a assessor kind of thing where i can say okay dave you're going to be my guy today so if i'm if if um, bill is having difficulty or jill is having difficulty i might send them off to you on the side and then you ask them these questions to see what's going on maybe they're having a crap day or something's going on at home so just they're not focused they're not paying attention okay then we that's fine but if things seem to be okay and they're just not paying attention we need to kind of figure out why that is and, and get them back into the attentional focus. Some of the activities I'm going to do are going to be performance-based and I'm going to define that for the players. Again, it can be U7 to pro, doesn't matter. Here's what the metric is. The metric is now outcomes matter more. This is when you need to be at your best for everything and you need to try and work as hard as you can. We're going to keep score somehow. It might be on the scoreboard, it might be under their individual metrics. It might be uh, puck possession. It might be decision-making. It could be anything. But we're going to keep metrics, and there's going to be winners and losers. And we can either rank order everybody, or maybe we have multiple teams, and it's a com competition between the multiple teams, or it's just two teams. 
whatever maybe it's like a you know a badminton ladder where you know people try to rise up to the top or you know and you're constantly fighting and shifting of positions um one of the things i did um at the university level is i i had a power play competition so for one whole practice everybody had the opportunity to earn a spot in the power play for the weekend and if you met a bunch of metrics in practice you're on our power play unit if not well, too bad you're gonna kill the penalties then and so it was completely wide open. You had to earn it every week. So I always have a mix of learning and, and performance context within each practice. I understand why I have them there. My coaches understand why. The players understand what they are and why they're important. Parents understand. And then at the end, I'll either have um, something fun but still purposeful at the end. So not a babysitter, uh, um, not a babysitter practice drill or activity but it's an actual uh, intentional reason why we have that there and I might focus on just one thing um, but I'll always have time to debrief and of course I'll do that off the ice but if you don't build in a debrief with your through your practice and maybe you have a couple of small debriefs then you're doing yourself a disservice because you need to provide time for the athletes to critically reflect even the seven-year-olds are capable of doing this and I've done it because I did it for two years with Callie through Timbits and two years with Devin through Timbits plus other years where I've coached Timbits where it's not even been my kids and they are capable of it. We as coaches do not give enough credit to the young kids to be able to come up with answers to guided questions. We tell them the answer or we yell at them the answer. So to me that's what an ideal 60 minute practice would be. It, full of context very like like no static individual skills and drills everything is done in a game environment because if you look at a skills checklist and you play a game of one-on-one -on -one, you're going to check almost every one of those individual skills off in a checklist and if you want to get into individual tactics you can do the same if you want to get into team tactics you make it a two-on-one or a two-on-two -two. you just checked off all the boxes potentially for in, uh, team tactics don't worry about all the percentages. Don't worry about all the little tick boxes. Make it make it realistic, gamify it, and you 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 cover all that stuff. So you become far more efficient and effective as a coach. Fun, learn, return. All those boxes are ticked. Yeah, that's good stuff. But particularly interesting, I find you know half your practice is one on one. Uh, I like that, and I I like. I, not necessarily one-on-one, -on -one, but I really like even number situations because, you know, we can practice two-on-ones, for example, um, and there can be some execution there. But to me, the real skill is creating a two-on-one. And that comes through a two-on-two -two where players then make that into a two-on-one in whatever whatever um, scenario that is. So, but one-on-one, but, but -on -one, you're right. You're puck protecting. You're changing your speed you know what i mean um tactically the way you're angling there's a lot goes into that so i think you made some great well points and, and a lot of people like when you think about one-on-one -on -one, a lot of people will like so what do you think about first when i when i say one-on-one -on -one? what's your first thought on one-on-one -on -one? which are you looking at offense or defense Sorry, straight away, my mind goes to offense, the player with the puck, when I'm thinking of those skills, just because, like I said, the puck protect, um, the edges, the, the stick handling um, versus the defensive side, like the defensive skating, 
um, angling, stick checking, all those things. But my mind goes to the offensive side. And it's an interesting question to ask because I do it at my coaching clinics. I mean, it, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just, mm. you know, are you glass half full or half empty? Are you offensively minded or defensively minded? And like most of the people I ask tend to be defensively minded. Um, right. And, and, and as, as such, they tend to focus more on defense first. And I, I go that, like regardless of which, which answer you choose, and there's no right or wrong, people need to understand it's not an either or it's it's um it's a continuum right it's a it's an interrelationship and the biggest neglect in hockey understanding from a coach's point of view and then you could filter that to parents and to players is um the the concept the principle like there's four offensive principles four defensive principles they're all the same except under offense you got puck control under defense you got stall and contain as it's you know corresponding um principle but everything starts either offense or defense transition and so everything i do there's always transition it's not like if dave is attacking dean so dave is offense dean is defense if dave is attacking dean and the puck goes out of bounds it's done or dave shoots the goalie saves it and covers it or the goalie deflects it off to the end of the line so dave just curls to the end of the line dean curls the end of his line and we do something else no we respond to the rebound if you miss the the the, the net then maybe i can get the puck right so maybe now i've gone from defense to offense and it, it, i think dave it's a critical critical point in this whole talk today is we neuter transition in a traditional practice because number one, the coach is blowing a whistle to start to stop the drill or to at least start the next drill, which by default, then the players that are performing the drill, when they hear the next whistle for the next people to go, mean you're done, get out of the way. Or they just naturally have learned that and they curl away from the, the play and the puck and they quit on the play. But that's how the coach designed the drill. But if you look at hockey, there's like, I can't remember the, the, the statistical analysis, but depending on the age level and the, the, how big the playing surface is, like if you're looking at full ice hockey and like adults playing, I mean, there's four or five to 700 trans, transitions in a game. So in practice, again, I go back to the fact that you are not going to get a, a, a transition reflected in doing individual skill training on these pep things or any of this other stuff. And yet we spend so much time on, on, we're fascinated with deconstructing the game down to these technical components. And yet the reality of the games are, why are we not doing half of our games one-on-one -on -one continuous? If you score, dig the puck out, go the other way, you get scored on, okay, you're out, new person comes in, go, 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 transition, 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 or it's under a time limit that, you know, whatever, but you gotta, you gotta build in transitions and coaches just completely neuter their drills. Defensemen, once they knock the puck off the kid's stick, oh, it's over. We don't even need a whistle. I go to my line, you go to your, no, where's the compete and the fight to go get that puck back? Why doesn't the defenseman, instead of teaching them to knock the puck off the stick, why don't you teach them to do a stick lift, to steal it, pivot, pivot away, protect the puck, acceleration agility deception head fake go the other way now you're on offense like let's train the other side of the defenseman why is he not now looking for an outlet pass why is he not looking now take a guy on one-on-one -on -one or make a stretch pass 
you know, a penetrating pass up the middle and become part of the offense. We completely destroy this in our traditional coach certification and our teaching of our drills. So I, I think, you know, boy, it's kind of a, a, a veering away from your initial question, Dave, but I just think it's so critically important. We, we got to do a better job. Yeah, and that's, like you said, that's probably one of my biggest pet peeves with young players and them playing. You know, we pencil them in, we pigeonhole them into, playing defense and that ends up to just hit the puck away and if you get it throw it out of the defensive zone and, and you're doing a great job and that's just killing yeah. killing players i think we're, we're, that's killing individual technique it's killing yeah. tactics decision making uh, fun uh, yeah. you know the old moose jaw breakout high and hard off the glass like it's yeah. it's it's ridiculous like it's we got to be better than that you know yeah and i think it's probably we do the worst job and when I say we like coaches in general with defensemen in minor hockey because defensemen are seen I think we're very archaic in that sense that defensemen are seen of stay back you you don't go in the offensive zone you you like I said you just hit the puck away and get it out of your zone and you're doing a good job whereas to me when you have the puck you're on offense you don't have to be in the offensive zone to to be on offense you can be in your defensive yeah. zone with the puck on your stick and you're in offense and that may you may be in there for a while with the puck on your stick and that's fine you're just stretching out now your offensive zone instead of being a third of the rink is the whole rink and and there's advantages to that but it's it's allowing players to to be creative it's allowing a defenseman to try to make an offensive play in his own end and it not work you know, and, and that's okay. That's, it just happens to be near the net, but that's fine. We need to allow players to do more. So I like how you bring that one up because definitely a pet peeve of mine. Going to the bench now, I'd like to talk a little bit about bench management because like you mentioned earlier, a lot of teaching is done at practice. A lot of coaching is done in the game, but how much coaching or communicating do you do on the bench during a game? Very minimal. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier, you don't want to be an Xbox coach to shut up. It's not a time to teach, it's a time to coach. Coach means you, you're organized. Uh, minor hockey, equal ice. You know, maybe fair ice, but, you know, I try to make it equal ice. Just roll your lines, doesn't matter. Um, you're not there to win anything. Who cares what you win at U9, U11, U13, U15, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. U18, who cares? You know what? Next year there's going to be another season. Doesn't matter. We're basically training players to be people, to be good people, to be good citizens, and to hopefully become a beer leaguer in whatever country we're in. Because such a small number of people actually go anywhere with hockey and do anything with it, like to get an education through a scholarship or play pro or whatever. Like, like, like if if you're in it for that you're in it for the wrong reasons and you, you better get yourself out of minor hockey and get into pro hockey. But, um, you know, we should be there just to teach life skills through sport. Um, when I say on the bench, I, I roll my lines and I, I mean, I've done it in junior B, junior A, um, university even, I've tried to roll three lines consistently whenever I can. Um, there's times and places, I guess, at the higher levels where I've probably, you know, played around with that a little bit because I felt the, the the pressure of, okay, we need the win in the standings to advance the playoffs or whatever. But I, I try to still be consistent in that where I try to 
give everybody an opportunity. And if you're not in the power of play, then you're going to be on the penalty kill. It's not like you're just going to sit in the, on the bench and rot. Um, so from a coaching perspective on the bench during a game, it's more about observing, making notes. Maybe I'll shoot a little bit of video. Um, I'll record comments myself if I, if I want, but mainly I make notes. Um, and I would say coaching is more positive reinforcement. Teaching occurs at practice. So it's, again, we're separating a learning environment and performance environment. When you are in a game, it's a performance environment. Now, levels under pro, it's still a learning environment, even in this performance context, because you always learn. But your emphasis is it's a performance environment, so it's coaching. It's positivity and cheerleading. It's not, um, you know, sitting down, telling them they're wrong and telling them, all these new concepts they need to apply all of a sudden because you haven't talked about in practice that just confuses the player. So don't even go there like, forget it. Like just be a positive cheerleader and, you know, a guide. And then in, in the learning environment, in the practice, that's when you can start to address those things. So again, I go back and I use appreciative inquiry and Socratic questioning. That's what I do. And I don't say it too much on the bench, you know, and I'll, I'll ask a lot of questions. And, you know, hey, Dave, what did you see in that shift? Like, I saw this happen, this happen, and this happen. But that was from my perspective on the bench. What did you see in that perspective? You know, listen to the kid. Even a U7 can, can kind of give you some feedback. Yeah, I like that. I think it's, it's important that play, I like, and especially that question you asked, what did you see there? I find myself as a coach, particularly with kids, is, is probably one of the things I say the most on the bench because it's easy to say, and I hear it a lot from coaches is, you know, oh, you had a guy there. Like, why didn't you go D to D there? You had D to D or, or whatever else. Whereas if a player doesn't see the play that they we can't expect them to make the play and we don't want them to make the play that they can't see so asking what they see and and listening to that feedback i think then gives you a better idea of what that player one is capable of as a player because what they're seeing is what they're capable of and and puts you in their shoes because like i said we can't expect them to make plays that they don't see right it's easy we see everything from the bench but real tough when you're under in the pressure of a game, particularly going back to your comments on practice, particularly if you're not practicing under pressure and then we're throwing them in a game where, where the heat's on. It's like a hand grenade in a room. Like, what do you do when the flashbang goes off? What do you do when Mike Tyson punches you in the nose? Like all your planning goes out the window, right? Like, yeah. like I, I haven't dealt with this. What do I do? Yeah. You know, I'm going to go into a fetal position and cry, right? Like, yeah. And that's why we do a great disservice if we don't include a lot of competition in practice. Because like I say, the reason I do half one-on-one in practice is all the research that I've read is, you know, at U20 level, 45% of the game is one-on-ones. Even in a five-on-five situation, when you start to look at really who's contextually involved in the play, it comes back to 45% one-on-one, 35% two-on-one. So, you know, let's see, 45 and 35 that's a pretty big percentage out of a hundred and that's what encompasses the game. So why are we not, why are our learning environments and practice environments not reflecting that? We spend so much time at the higher levels on power play and penalty kill five on four, five on three Who cares. Like power play, like everything else is 10%. After you get your 
you're one-on-one, -on -one, you're two-on-one, -on -one. everything else, every other situation, six-on-five, goalie out, um, everything, 10%. So if you're going to be a smart coach, invest the time in the situations that most commonly occur in practice, which is one-on-one, two-on-one. You're done. You're good. You're a genius. You've just prepared your kids for a performance environment. Excellent. Look, a few quick hitters here to finish. Um, you know, from all, all your experience, what has been one of your most memorable coaching moments from a learning standpoint? Well, I, I remember this one um, distinctly. And um, when I first met John, the Colombian, um, it was the end of our first year coaching the women's team at the Dinos. And it was a social group, really. Like when I look, think back on it compared to what it's like now in the CIS or eSport or whatever they call it, um, we'd kind of like um, we'd kind of inherited the team. The head coach left and great group of kids, great group of girls really enjoyed it. Like it was a great environment, but it was a social environment. That was the priority. And they were non-competitive in the level in the league they were at. Like they were, the attitude was more conducive of an intramural team than a, you know, a university team, like a varsity team. And so John had had my year all year challenging me instead of do because I was doing drills up until 2004. I was a drill guy. Like that's all I knew. And I was drill of the month club, drill of the month. We were faxing drills to each other back in the day, Dave. Now I don't know who has a fax machine. Um, but, you know, I was fascinated with drills and all year John's whispered in my ear, like, you know, Hey, why don't you try this one and do this and introducing me to the concepts and challenging me. And uh, I'm just like, Jesus, John, shut up. You know, like a few times I was thinking that I didn't tell him that it's too polite, but um, you know, I just, I thought he was like mental and crazy and I made that leap of faith. And so when the coach and immediately John, you're my, my assistant, um, we, we took the kids to their old red gym and we had a two hour off ice. And so, like I said, I had, I had some out of shape people on the team. Like, I mean, there was none of this training. Some were in shape, but there was a few that, you know, yeah. yeah. And, and the skill level was fairly low, but, some, but good people. And so John said, let me have two hours. I'm going to put this off ice. Um, I say training session. I don't mean it can be physical training. It's not nothing to do with physical training. It was all about, um, um, he was teaching him body language awareness. He was teaching him peripheral vision and it was competitive and it was one-on-one. -on -one. And then we, we went into some kind of team competitive stuff and it was all using modified handball. So basically, you know, in a gym and you, you, th you throw a ball and you can run when you don't have the ball, but when you have the ball, you can, you can take like two steps and you have to stop. And then other constraints we would put on it was a time constraint where you could only hold the ball for three seconds. And then if you hadn't moved it, the whistle blew, there's a turnover. You had to drop the ball. The other team had, you know, had a crack at it. So he had this two hour training thing set up and I wish we would have recorded it because I've said in this interview, you can't see learning happen. 
within a session. It, it takes time and there's a baseline. You can do measures or you can just, you know, from a trained eye, you can see, yeah, you know, Jill's getting better at stick handling under pressure or whatever, better decisions, better skating faster, whatever. But in this two hour session, I watched John take this social group of largely unskilled, fairly non-athletic even, not by hockey standards, but just physical literacy standards. He did this thing for two hours and it absolutely blew me away. And I saw non-competitive, unfit, unathletic, unskilled, like young adults start to become competitive, start to push themselves. I didn't see skills improve because I had no idea what they were like playing modified handball before. This was the first time for, for the team and for myself. But what I did see was I saw changes mentally in their behavior. Like I saw them pushing past the point that they would like normally on an ice surface, they give up, right? Like their skills weren't there, but everybody could walk. Everybody can run. Now some for not as long as others or not as powerfully or not as agile or coordinated, but you know what you run, you catch, you throw. Like they were all more, more equal than they were on the ice. But I saw them work through hardship. I saw them work through challenge. And I saw how John handled them and how he used that questioning style and how he put the challenges back to them. And then he held them accountable. And he did it. He punished the, the, the losers with push-ups and sit-ups and like physical fitness. And he rewarded the winners with a break and water. And, and for two hours this went on and, and I was mesmerized. And like I say, I wish, you know, we both wish we would have um, recorded this. And um, I'll, I'll never forget it. It's, it's frozen in my mind's eye forever. And even the unathletic, unskilled, unfit, uncoordinated kids, they, all of them came over to us after, like just individually or in groups. They were exhausted. I mean, they're laying on the floor. Like they were done. They've never worked as hard in their life. But they, at the end, we went for a walk outside. And they just said, that two hours flew by. It was like a flow experience. Did it ever suck from a fitness level? Like we were dying, like you were killing us, but you held us accountable. We had so much fun and we learned so much. And when I say learned, like I'm not just like pushing through the, the mental and the physical barriers, but their positioning and their use of principles of play, you know, transition, um, ball control, um, you know, stall and contain. Um, their principles of play it was like, it was like a different group of people. I'm going, well, you guys have never done this on the ice. And so for me, I mean, that was like hundred percent most memorable um, thing I'll ever remember. It was just how that way of teaching and the content of what was in the, the curriculum for that two hours, like it, it was transformational. And that just, that just set us up for success you know, all the off-season training after that, and then how we implemented it for the next couple of years we were with the Dinos. Like we, we went, we did way more off-ice stuff because then I realized you don't need ice to make huge, huge impact here. You can, you can get creative. So that was, that was awesome. That was 2004. It was great. That sounds, that sounds excellent. And, and maybe a, a similar answer can be used to my next question, but 
What has been one of your most memorable coaching moments where you've, you've really felt that breakthrough as a coach? Yeah, and I, I, mean, I alluded to this earlier, like when you talked about recording yourself, like video or audio in a practice or a game environment. So, I mean, I did it for my, my advanced one back in the day. Um, and then I've avoided it ever since because I just found it uncomfortable. And I, I did it once or twice later, but, you know, it was like, yeah, I don't think like, it's embarrassing. I don't, I don't want to see it myself, you know. Um, you know, I guess everybody's got a little bit of an ego, right? Um, but I, when I started my PhD in Cardiff Met in Wales in 2018, um, I'd been out of school for, what, 18, 19 years, um, formal school. And um, it was a real eye-opener. And one of the things we had to do was um, we had to, after we got through a bunch of the coursework, um, then we had to create our own action research. So mine, I did mine on, um, basically it was like my ability to um, examine myself and um, observe myself and how I coached. So I, I ended up, I recorded myself over the course of, I think it was about 14 weeks. So I moved, when I moved back to Calgary in the spring, I, every Friday morning, I, I had um, a video camera and I had my digital recording device and my phone. And so I mic'd myself to give the um, opening address of each, each um, Friday morning. And then, you know, they'd go out and do it and come back. Then I'd record all my interactions with the players and then I had the video running. So I had, you know, body language stuff. And then I analyzed it and John was there with me. And so I would formulate some um, notes after for about a half hour. Then John, I would sit down and debrief for about an hour after every session. And, you know, that was my research. So I was looking at myself and I was doing a U12 group. And then I did like a, you know, pro junior uh, midget triple A group. So kind of half with one and half with the other. But I analyzed my own coaching. And, and so that was like way out of my comfort zone, right? And um, and then I had to, I had to uh, not publish my research, but I had to present my research in a, in a forum and record it. And then I had to analyze my presentation of my research and do another follow-up on it. So it was like, you know, almost like a 360 degree analysis of my own coaching style over, you know, three and a half months. So it was pretty personal and pretty intimate. But to me, that was... Um, I really, I thought I, I was doing a good job of shutting up and letting the players figure it out and all the things we've talked about here today. But I found I was, I was not giving them as much of an opportunity as I thought I was as far as time to process and to plan and to talk amongst themselves and debrief. And some of my feedback was more directive than I wanted. Like I, I needed to work more on the Socratic questioning than getting impatient and then interjecting things or, or prompting them too early. So they hadn't had time to think of it. So for me, that was a really good shake up, you know, in my own personal style, like to align it more to what I thought I was doing. Nice. And look for all our coaches out there. What are your must haves in your coaching equipment bag? What do you have to take with you to drink? I'll get something. Okay. As I disappear into the waves, <laughs> surf. 
Um, I'm going to hold up. I'll hold up four books, maybe fifth one. Um, and then I'll mention it for the podcast yeah. people. The first one, Russian Hockey Secrets by a famous Russian coach. The strategy, the psychology, the game tactics, the training methods, the philosophy of collective hockey. The Road to Olympus by Anatoly Tarasov. So now this is, uh, I don't know, it's not showing. Oh, there it is. I don't know if you can see that, but it's, um, it's yeah. fading in and out in my thing here. This is an old book. Like you're lucky to find a copy. It's, um, I spent 30 bucks, but now they're like 300, 400 bucks, 200 bucks. It's, um, first published in Canada in 1969 pocketbook, November, 1972. Very rare. You got to do some digging on this one in order to find it. But Russian hockey secrets road to Olympus. There's some interesting, we talk about different perspectives for different eras and the, um, the Russian era and this, the hockey era back then, like Tarasov and the, the Soviet machine leading into 72 is fascinating. And it goes into how, you know, in the forties and the fifties, he started this to research hockey in Canada and, and basically the improvements that he made in a short period of time to create Russian hockey. So it's a really cool perspective piece. Um, this book, The Little Book of Talent by Daniel Coyle, um, you know, and he's also got the culture code out, which I haven't completely read. Little Book of Talent is like a quick hitter. There's lots of good stuff in here, like the stuff, um, each point, like I forget how many points he's probably got like, you know, 50 points. Um, part one, getting started, part two, improving skills, part three, sustaining progress. And they're like three or four pages each. So it's quick. It's to the point. There's some interesting material there. These last two books, um, I think they should be foundational books for any parent or coach for any sport. So the first one is mindset by Dr. Carol Dweck. Um, you can see, I've kind of got a few notes in there. Um, I've reread several parts, uh, pages are dog-eared, but mindset, the new psychology of success, how we can learn to fill, fulfill our potential parenting, business, school, and relationships. Um, she's got a YouTube thing, like a TED Talk, but I'll be honest, I didn't think much of it. It was very um, dry, probably like myself in this one, um, but the content was outstanding. Um, the one I'm revisiting now, I've got on an audio book form, um, it's been an excellent. It's Grit by Angela Duckworth. And um, her TED Talk is okay. It's better than Carol's, but it's not, not great. Um, but I'll tell you, if you can get into her book, it's um, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Um, I think I'm six hours into a nine and a half hour audio book on my walks in the morning. And I'm going to go back, finish it, go back, and, and then go through the book again make my own notes um just those are four um outstanding book resources um and then the other things i do dave i i do i listen to some select podcasts um i'm very discriminating now i only listen to probably four or five uh, regularly um uh you know and time time is always an enemy like we just never have enough time right um, but the podcasts I listen to, I'll, I'll give you a couple here. Um, hopefully this one, I haven't, uh, listened enough to this one yet to make my own opinion, but 
hopefully at least mine will get some reviews. Um, but the um, the podcast I listen to regularly from a, a like a, I say professional development point of view um, include the Tim Ferriss show. So Ferris is spelled F-E-R-R-I-S-S, and uh, it's called the Tim Ferriss Show. A wide range of stuff. I won't listen to everyone. I um, cherry pick the ones that I think have interest. Um, the Talent Equation. So Stuart Armstrong from the UK. Very good. Um, sometimes I'll listen to Don't Tell Me the Score it's through BBC. Um, again, I cherry picked that one. Um, a friend of mine has got a second podcast. Um, it's called Grassroots, the Minor Hockey Show. It's Richard Berkison. He's in the Oshawa area. Um, he had a podcast on TSN with the same name, running out of Ottawa when he was living there for about four or five years. And then when he moved, they discontinued it. And he, he's kind of restarted this one. I think it's it's just it's only finished its first year now um another one that has started recently from a couple of students at the sports school in viramak finland i think it's exceptional i've listened to everyone it's called the coach's road by um rick rick and derek rick's uh, a german kid and derek's a uh, american kid um rick is in year three and derek's in year two and they have some excellent guests and they ask some excellent questions. So I, I listen to that when it comes out weekly. I listen to that one every week. There's only been one or two, I think, that in my opinion weren't as good as the rest, but they've had some really good stuff. So those are the podcasts I listen to. Um, you know, like I say, it's a competition for time um, for me. And then I journal and I journal regularly, but my, my, um, I have a little, I always have a little book, little journal, and I carry it with me. And, you know, I just well, you can't really see, but I make every wow. day, I do an entry in it every day. I've got about six of these on the shelf, and there's about, I don't know, 250 pages in each one. So wow. I've been doing it for several years now. So it doesn't have to be a coaching point, but just something that, you know, cracks my interest. I make a note and I, it could be a quote. It could be something I read from a book. And sometimes, like when I'm reading Tarasov or one of these things, I might spend about six pages writing about one concept. You know, so I, I kind of give myself credit for six days. You know what I mean? Because I try to keep it keep it up every uh, like I do it once a day. And of course, then I have my just like a notebook I carry around by my bedside table when I'm out walking, listening to podcasts. I can make a note because I, I I prefer paper and pen than type it on a little tiny keyboard on my phone. And then um, I've also used index cards, and uh, I carry these with me in my little journal. And so, for example, I have this one has six different general Socratic questioning. Uh, techniques and questions and when I can use them so I'll reflect on them and be going into a session just to remind myself you know rather than what did you see well that's great but you can't always just say what did you see right you got to mix it up I've got um, seven critical thinking dispositions from Harvard University um, just to try and stay open-minded and to always be searching for the holy grail of coaching and the truth 
know, like the X-Files says, the truth is out there. I just don't know where. I'm still looking. And then I've, I've got a few other things I jot down that mm. I think if they're important, then I just pull them out and I reflect on them. But it's, it's an everyday process because I take it seriously and it's my profession and it's my, my passion and my love. And this is what I do. Um, so from a, a, theoretic, a theoretical point of view, the question of what other tools are in your, your coaching toolbox is my brain. Um, since starting the PhD program, um, I've really developed an appreciation for higher level thinking and critical thought and reflection. It's so important. The best coaching years I've ever had are the ones where I have journaled every day and I've, I've written out who was there, who was late, who was sick, who was injured, who was missing, who had a good practice. I rated each player every practice. I had every practice plan written down in there, just bullet points because I know what they are. I made notes on each drill or activity or game, how they went, good, bad, or ugly. How would I change it next time? Would I change it next time? Um, like, basically, it's just an intense document of record keeping on all the details. So I can flip back from week to week, month to month, year to year. And at the same time, I've got pages at the end. Okay, what are some commonalities I, I see here for me to get better as a coach? What am I, where are my weaknesses? Where are my strengths? How can I get better? Like my own gap analysis, so how I can improve. So, you know, for me, um, that those years where I put the time in and you ask, well, how many hours would you, you know, expect if we play one practice a week and two games a week? Like I would put in, you know, like I said, I'd go two off, two practices, one game, and I'd do at least one off ice. Like I'd try to have a three to one ratio minor hockey if I could four to one is better but again your warm lifestyle over there your lack of uh facilities the kids might not want it the cultural like the lack of culture in hockey might preclude that so you'd need to adjust that a little bit um and then finally what i would say is um bookstores coffee nature and peace and walking to get ideas and listen to podcasts um, my stopwatch, I always have a stopwatch to time stuff, time on task, time explaining, time at the board, time organizing. I'm always aware of this, these things. And no whistles. Get rid of your whistle. You don't need a whistle. This is the other thing we can do, like the defenseman neutering a drill. Coaches, get rid of your whistles. Shut up. Get rid of your whistles. Tell the players they need to be alert in line or on the bench or whatever it is because they need to know when the next repetition begins and they need to be paying attention and you can train this in you seven kids you need to be patient it'll take a lot of trial and error but you can do it so don't use a whistle a whistle in a game means stop it means now pressure's off we can have a line change go get ready for a face off have a water whatever a whistle doesn't mean start it means stop that's it I like it. Like, uh, particularly the books and podcast recommendations. I think that's a lot there for coaches. That's excellent. Um, look, we've taken a lot of time, Dean. I really appreciate it. I, uh, as I said, uh, on top of the books and podcasts, there was excellent stuff there for all of our coaches. Um, and I know there's a lot more. So hopefully we can connect again and do another one of these um, and dive deeper into some certain topics because we didn't get through a lot of questions there, but um, such great detail and, and content for, for myself and all the other coaches. So really appreciate it, mate. 
Oh, you're welcome, Bailey. It's always good to reconnect. And I mean, these podcasts and YouTube videos are a great way for you to learn too. And for me, it forces me like to use that critical thought and reflection and really think back about, you know, how can I come up with thoughtful answers and hopefully meaningful and applicable answers for the coaches that are going to listen so they can take some of this stuff and go out and put into play rather than just, you know, same old song and dance you get a certification clinic that you just put on a shelf and i got full of sh you know shelves full of this paper here if i ever run out of toilet paper in the pandemic i know where i can go you know <laughs> i can recycle all this stuff so yeah so hats off to you for doing the um you know creating the the, the podcast and youtube channel because i think it's going to accelerate your own uh coaching and and the coaches that you work with there and, and obviously the players so good job